0: This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith.
1: We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change and thankfully they can change for the better, but not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang related and racist tattoos for free and there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started.
2: I helped started. I'm not gonna take all the credit for it because it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face and he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them and uh he was will- and he was willing to pay, you know, but what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger and, and it 's not going to do what you want it to do and so we discussed lasers, but the bottom line was I really could see the hurt you know that this guy was going through because he had done this you know gotten these tattoos, and that he needed he just wanted to uh, his job and not have people follow him or you know and and I could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made I think that was on January something it was mid January um and we basically said if you have hate or uh, racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos That we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing you, you know, the post you just did is going viral, and she thought, she was like, how did I get a virus? You know, like, she didn't even know (laughs) what viral was.
1: So they needed some help.
2: Once that happened, I'd say, you know, we probably got thousand uh, inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that that there was a need, and we started Redemption Inc. Um, We had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption, Inc., because it was, it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and, um, it just, and, and then that took off, actually.
1: This Random Act of Kindness is changing people's lives giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You service? know,
2: I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that, that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling, or like a lot of them are, are, are scared because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me, and a few of them even travel from far away so far so and by the way so far i 've helped personally helped twenty two people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two yeah they're at first they 're a little scared, but then once I get them you know in my chair, I talk to them like people and and you know i I get to hear the story behind it, and most of them were i would have to say you know ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. The sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not... With somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim?
1: When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards?
2: Yeah, it's A couple of them, yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20 something years of tattooing. You know, people, people do feel that they have to, I guess. And so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody. And so. You know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I, like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of
1: course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing.
2: You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable, and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not. We're here to you know fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media. If they don't want to be involved in that, then I. Their my first priority is definitely their safety.
0: And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on our American stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story. And by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety.
2: A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true, you know, blood in, blood out. Like A lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like Like, we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but... We make sure that, hey, we're here. Here's my hand.
1: Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property.
2: So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff. And, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's uh, uh, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or it it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, (laughs) you know, like, you don't tattoo and say property of, like, nobody should be property of anybody. And, and, you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to, you know, it's almost out of a a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame uh, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake
1: more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar
2: I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, they're the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same, and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody, and, um, you know. Of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them. You know, if they want to tell me, then they can. But we don't. I don't make anybody say anything. You know, because they've already been judged enough. I have so far seeing a couple of the people that i've tattooed moved on and, and you know they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had like power on his arms and one of the kids brandon that i tattooed engaged now and get ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo it was really fun he, he traveled a little bit to uh come see us, but he was extremely, actually I think he traveled from New York City, but he was extremely nice and, and, you know, when he talked to some of the media people, he he explained how he felt the shame of of having to do what he had to do, but if he didn't do that, you know, it was more being a victim again, And, and again, who wants to be a victim?
1: And these people are truly making attempts to change, but... Unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced.
2: It, it, it's all been uh, pretty fun and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that, that you know, they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives.
1: And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you?
2: Absolutely, I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just wow, <laughs> like even the the stuff going viral, and then you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because you know not every. The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that that these people believe them. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, forgiving somebody is, is more important, you know, And and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago?
1: Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone?
2: It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media. Some some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions that it, it kind of got to me, and, and you know, and, it, and kind of it kind of gave me a wow moment.
1: Well, you're changing lives.
2: You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, like, these people. These people, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I I shouldn't be getting credit for the the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles let's just say that i I, i'm comfortable with that (laughs) i help them remove obstacles they i I believe that the people that uh and i truly really believe that that they've already done what they needed to do i didn't help them change they did it themselves i've tried to stay as humble as i possibly can like you know i have had people come up to me and You know, like, oh, my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and and it it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face. But like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like, (laughs) I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people. and, And when, in fact, they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that. Someone has to do it.
1: Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved?
2: Yes, actually, yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, In fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state, like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate uh, that, you know, the the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be – give them a a good service. So we actually look look at their websites, look at their work, and, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe.
1: We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption, Inc., whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories.
0: And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave... And help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys' inmates. My goodness, you gotta choose. Sometimes not in a gang, you're gonna get beat. You gotta pick one. Redemptioninc.org is where you go. Redemption Inc., and that's INK org. And to hear all that we do, go to our Dave Cutlip Story. Redemption Inc. Story here on our American stories. American Stories, where we love to bring you wise voices who can share their wealth of experience and wisdom with us. And we do mostly storytelling, but from time to time, you know, in the end, so many stories have inside them, packed inside them. And I think the reason we're drawn to them is because there's wisdom inside those stories. And Frank Hanna is one of those people that we just consider a, a wise man. And he's a husband, a father, an investor in Atlanta. And he now shares this selection from his book, What Your Money Means, on his discovery of the four steps to improve our lives.
3: So, the first one is to find out the truth about how things are now. One of my favorite philosophers is actually a 20th century philosopher named Joseph Pieper, P-I-E-P-E-R, he's German. And he writes a lot about prudence, the virtue of prudence, being able to make the right decisions about things. He says the beginning of prudence is to have a good understanding of reality. You, you can't start to make something better if you don't see it as it truly is. And so I, I really focus on being grounded to reality. I just had a conversation this morning with someone who, he told me he was gonna do something and then he hedged a little bit on it. I said, so you're gonna do that in the next two months? He said, yes. He goes, yeah, next two or three months. I said, wait a minute, two months or the next two or three months? He said, well, you know, I, I said, no, I just, you're, you're making me nervous. You said yes, which sounded like you were tethered to reality, and then you wanted to fuzz up the reality a little bit, and he said two or three months. And that made me nervous because that means you, you don't want to make it too clear. You want some wiggle room and you want to hedge a little bit. And so most people would say, oh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm grounded in reality. I think you have to see things as they really are. But, but they're not really telling the truth. T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets wrote that humankind can only bear so much reality. So we're all al- we say we want to see things as they really are but we don't always because sometimes reality is painful and we're afraid of it you wonder why people don't go to a doctor when they know they ought to go to a doctor they don't want to hear the diagnosis and so sometimes we surround ourselves with delusions and we do this when we're trying to solve problems in life too so yeah i think the first thing is you got to see things how they really are This is part of basic spirituality where you do your examination of conscience. You know, in what areas do I need to grow? Virtues, they're not emotions. They're habits of behavior that we have to cultivate in ourselves. They don't just happen. Interesting enough, you know, the, the root of the word virtue, vera, it means man. A virtue is actually that which distinguishes the mammal homo sapiens from all the other mammals. A virtue is actually what makes a homo sapien a man. It's acting with deliberate intent to rise above the selfish animal instinct because most animal instincts, right, are around survival or food or these things. And a virtue requires sacrifice. And it requires a decision to sacrifice and then after a while it becomes a habit. And that's actually what makes a man or woman, a man or woman and not just an animal. And I think the way you build virtue is, is through this examination. Now, when you're young, those you love help cultivate it in you. Right? And they cultivate in you being polite and being courageous and all the other virtues one might think of. But as we get older, I think we either slide in them or we hang around with other virtuous people and maybe some of it rubs off. But ideally what we do is we, we work at it. You know, this is when Benjamin Franklin wrote his autobiography, much of that is about how he would set goals for himself in terms of the, the way he would behave. You know, and you learn how to be thrifty, and you learn all, all these various things. And it's interesting how many organizations like the Boy Scouts were sort of oriented around how, how do you develop virtue. The second thing here, discover the truth about how they're supposed to be. And this is one reason I read philosophers and great thinkers. There is a natural order to the world. The third one is, you know, figure out how to change things from how they are now to how they're supposed to be. And that's the for for those of us who are oriented that way, we're we're kind of tinkerers. And this is one of those is it a bug or is it a feature aspects. Yeah, you know, I go to the restaurant and the waiter says, "Will this table be okay?" or the hostess, you know, says, "Will this table be okay?" And I look and I think it's okay, but it's not It's not the best. I mean, that's not the table I would prefer. Would you mind if we had this table, right? And then we're going to sit down at the table, and one person sits here, and one person sits here, and I say, well, wouldn't it be better for our conversation if we sat like this? And I'm sometimes accused of, you know, people will say, do you you analyze everything? And the answer is, pretty much. Um, (laughs) So, is that a bug or is that a feature? Both. Does it ever drive me crazy? No, it doesn't drive me crazy, but it, it, it can lead to some anxiety. It can even lead to some melancholy. When you see things being less than what they could be, it can lead to anxiety, sadness, a whole host of other debilitating conditions. But I think people who feel that way tend to be the people who make things better. So the, the sanguine personality who is fine with the eggs as they came in or the music that's playing or, the, or, or whatever's happening, uh, they're fine with it. They're, they're not going to change things. And that's okay. The world needs some of those people too. probably needs more of those people than it does the tinkerers. But if you want to make something better, you've got you to gotta be something of a tinker and be asking, how might we make this better? And then the final thing when you're, when, you know, when you're attacking problems in world number four is, yeah, how do I bring within myself enough motivation to do what's necessary to bring about the change? You know, and so it's, it is one thing to see things as they really are and then think about how they ought to be ordered, which is number two. And then third, to figure out how to fix it but fourth is the biggie execution. How to change something. And it's a cliche that human beings don't like change. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but I do think human beings are uncomfortable with uncertainty and resistant to uncertainty. And they're uncomfortable with things that look like they're going to require sacrifice. And usually, change embodies both of those things. And so, It takes, I think, if we're gonna accomplish great things in life. Among the virtues we cultivate, I think we gotta cultivate persistence and steadfastness and fortitude and courage and those aspects of our behavior that are willing to keep us faithful to our mission despite the inevitable, almost nonstop obstacles that seem to arise to keep us from doing so.
0: And you were listening to Frank Hanna. And by the way, to get more wisdom from Frank, go to Amazon.com and pick up his terrific books, What Your Money Means and How to Use It Well, and A Graduate's Guide to Life, Three Things They Didn't Teach You in College That Could Make All the Difference. And we hear from so many of you that uh, you love gathering families around this work and in the car. And so much of what we do through our storytelling is teaching some of these virtues. And by the way, they're not doing much of in school anymore, this thing called character and courage and persistence and, in the end, resilience. I mean, how do, we, how do we create young people and turn them into resilient people? And we all need to hear this. And so, again, periodically here on the show, we will play from wise men and women. By the way, if there's a wise man or woman in your neighborhood, send them our way. If there's a great sermon, uh, send it our way. Once a week, we're going to deliver what we call these wisdom nuggets from people who this is a part of their life story, the search for these things, the search for these attributes in human beings and in human nature. Frank Hanna's story, because in a way, what he's sharing with us in all of these, in all of these misses is his life story and what he cares about here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories, and this next subject, well, it's a tough one, and it's the subject of homelessness, and it's a social crisis in our country now that's mostly ignored. And my goodness, the homeless people themselves, they're completely ignored. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, and he hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Luke's story. Luke came to L.A. with his wife. Her family invited them to come to live with him, so they jumped on a Greyhound bus. Once they arrived, their family never answered their calls, and the couple, well, they ended up on Skid Row. Here's Mark.
4: Luke, yeah. we're here in Los Angeles. You're homeless. Tell me about it. Um, well, there's a lot to tell. Um, Los Angeles is a very, very crazy place. Um, I came here with my wife. Um, fam- her family said, "Come on." Um, we got on a uh, Greyhound bus. We can't. We on our way. We started calling the first day, we left, and no answer, we figured just a fluke. Uh, Called the second day, no answer. And from then on, no answer. We haven't spoken to them since. You come here and you you, st- you come here, and you get stuck. And if you got nowhere to go, and no real family to bail you out, which me and my wife don't have, you kind of are forced to go to Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row is by the bus station. It's, it's where all the shelters are. It's where all the food is. It's where all the resources are, are located, but Skid Row is a very nasty place. Um, it to, yeah, go it, on. It, it will make it so you are constantly just worried about what you need to survive because everything's being taken from you. You're being taxed for living on certain streets. You have to pay. Um, basically, drugs run most of Los Angeles itself, but especially Skid Row. Um, Skiro um, hurt me in, in, in ways that I can't ever explain. It, it made me do things, and made me see things that I wish I never would have seen. Um, it's amazing what people can do to other people. Um, You're not have to, I can't hear you with the t- traffic. It's amazing what people can do to other people. Um, I especially feel bad for the females here. They get used up in, in, in a whole different way. Um, my wife experienced that. Um, but ultimately I've seen some great acts of kindness here. Um, I've seen some great things. The problem is you get trapped here and people say, I pay handle for money. People say, get a job. Okay, well, if I had somewhere to rest my head where my stuff wasn't stolen, where I didn't have to worry about blankets, where I didn't have to worry about food, um, I might be able to get a job. But then also, I've been seen through this entire town now and now I'm known as homeless. So to get a job, I have to leave the area. Um, I have nowhere to shower daily, I have nowhere to keep work clothes. Um, it's not as easy as get a job, you know? Um, and you don't get much sleep. No, right. Because you're in survival mode, and the other night I met somebody and his shoes were stolen while I was sleeping. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, that's a very funny uh, thing. Your shoes get stolen a lot while you're here. Um, <laughs> and who steals a homeless man's shoes? Your shoes can be completely worthless and someone still takes them. And that's a really hard thing because you wake up in the morning and you've got no shoes and you gotta walk around where people throw broken glass, um, people put on the, on the ground, cockroaches, um, and you gotta look for shoes. And that's, that's very disheartening. It, that's one of the strangest things I've come across here. I've had shoes that are completely worthless and stink so bad somewhere and someone still takes them. Um, but it's also sharpened me. I don't miss a beat. There isn't too much. I'm, I'm pretty in tune with everything and everyone around me. Um, I'm a lot more aware than they are, I, I, I assume. Um, People uh, who have spent time on the streets are very aware of their surroundings. You have to be. You have to be, because if not your surroundings will get you, you know, especially on Skid Row. You know, I don't go there at all anymore. Um, I, I broke from Skid Row about six months ago, and I haven't been there for a single thing. I broke from there for a reason somebody started trying to tax us, um, just on panhandling, bring money back. They wanted us to give them a percentage. And then they started doubling it and doubling it, and doubling it until the number got so astronomical that there's no way anybody could ever pay it. And it's extorted. They're they're Extortion. threatening, they're yeah. threatening violence yeah. or whatever. Right. Right. If you don't pay the tax, they'll burn their tent on. You know, I've had 13 whole tents stolen. I I just got jumped the other day. I've been jumped 13 times. Um, 10 of which I don't know the person or the person is completely, absolutely insane. And I still don't know them. And, or I never even seen the person who hits me because they're robbing me in an alley, you know? And it's, it's just, it's been hard, you know? But you survive, you find things like God, you find things like yourself, you find what you're made of, you know? Um, you can't break me. You can't break my, 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 my faith.
2: Is anybody helping you?
4: Yeah, not really, not really, really. Um, People throw me some money here and there, some food here and there, socks, as you did. Um, But things are so expensive here as well, like a hot dog behind me, $7. You know how long it takes me to sit down and make $7? You know? Um, Everything down here's a lot more expensive too, so. People think you make all kinds of money panhandling. There are days I do, there are days I do all right, but that money goes really fast because it costs a lot to live. You know, especially with a wife, you know, three meals a day, you know. Um, you splurge sometimes, socks, new clothes, you know. A shower is a really hard thing. Um, but what people don't understand, it's, you know, this is not a job that gives you self-esteem. Yeah, no. handling no. hey, people spit at you, call you yeah. names, oh, yeah. pour coffee on you. Yeah, right, right. You, but you have to be ready for that, like, and it gets to the point where it doesn't even matter. You don't care because you need it so bad, right. you know. And survival comes first. And we as human beings will do anything to survive. Yeah. You know? Now, is is like when I said anybody, any service providers, any homeless? They service? try, but I can't keep I can't keep a cell phone because it gets stolen. I can't keep a cell phone charged when I do got it. Um, there are people that stop by once in a while and take down my name, and my information, and say they're gonna help. And then I see them again, maybe two or three times here and there or I see them again and they turn their head and walk the other way and feel uh, ashamed They didn't help me um, or couldn't help me. I have people that throw me 10, $20 and think that's gonna solve everything and next time they're mad at me because I'm on the street because they're 10 or 20 dollars. But I'm at a point where I'm stuck. This is what I do. Um, I've become comfortable with it. Um, I don't see no other way out. Like I said, I feel like I'm falling and never hitting a bottom or at least hitting a bottom that's false and every time i go to try to climb out that bottom bottom's pulled cool for me and i fall more if i could reach an absolute solid bottom i might be able to climb up but there is no real bottom because it's always it's always being pulled off money you're always falling further what's your future like i'm not sure that's in god's hands god's in my hands you know because i do choose what i do you know but the opportunities that are out there are Harder when you're homeless and you've been seen as homeless. And when you have to do this all day just to eat, you know? Um, my story goes a little deeper than that. My wife got pregnant um, to uh, a prostitute. She's a prostitute. She got pregnant. Um, at the end of her pregnancy, she started having seizures. So she got diagnosed with brain cancer. So, and she's scared to death for the treatment because the treatment's like 80%, uh, 80% risk of death. It's just uncomfortable. I can also write You know, the only thing I really have to say to anybody is just appreciate family, because family is the one thing I don't have that might save me from this. Because when you mess up and you make a mistake, most people got family to bail them out. I don't. it's my wife. So we got to eat this one on ourselves. We got to find our way out ourselves. And you know, so appreciate family. They're the most important thing. And don't judge, because a lot of these people are two missed paychecks and no family away from being right here. You know, make it can happen really quick. You really can't before you know it and you're stuck, you know? If you had three wishes, what would they be? It's hard, it's hard. I haven't thought of, of I haven't wished for anything in so long because I'm just worried about getting what I need. Um, that's a hard one. I, that, like, I wish for my wife to be better. I wish I had family. I I don't know what I'd do with her. Why give it away? Thank you very much for talking
0: to me. You're very welcome. And you've been listening to Luke. And my goodness, what messages he talked about Skid Row. It hurt me in ways I can't ever explain. It made me do things and made me see things I wish I had never seen. You can get trapped here. It's at a point where I'm just stuck. I feel like I'm falling, and yet I never hit bottom. There's no real bottom. And my goodness, when he was asked three things to wish for, he he had to hesitate because he hadn't wished for something in so long. And then he said, I wish my life would be better, and I wish I had family. And my goodness, he's so right. appreciate family. It's the one thing I don't got, he said, and it's the thing we all need, and that's... People we love to pick us up when we fall. And that's why we do these stories. Uh, We do great family stories, great love stories, great entrepreneurship stories. But my goodness, the people who fall through the cracks, every family's got one. Or everyone knows a family who's got someone who's fallen through the cracks. And we've got a heart for those stories too, folks. And we know you do too, listening. And by the way, Mark Horvath's Invisible People Project, well, you can learn more about it. It's a 501c3 For more, search Invisible People on YouTube and go to their website at Invisible People TV and give to this group because, my goodness, it's important work that Mark Horvath is doing himself, once homeless, now covering the homeless. His story, Mark Horvath's Luke's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we bring you a Woman of True Grit story as a part of our series from our friend Edie Hand. Her friend, Christy Swade, currently runs an organization in Alabama called HEAL, H-E-A-L, which is making an effort across the country to fight childhood obesity. But Christy didn't get started in the healthcare industry, or in Alabama for that matter. She was born and raised in Chicago and began her career in jet skiing. Here's Edie Hand with the story.
5: Christy Suede is a unique woman with humble beginnings.
6: I had a very unexpected and unusual childhood. Born and raised in Chicago and my parents divorced when I was five. My dad kind of disappeared for a couple years and reinvented himself in Florida. My mom raised us uh, as a single parent. I really didn't understand it. My mom did continue to try to give us as much of a normal, joyful existence as possible and never really said anything ugly about him. Uh, So it was just, very confusing to me and I always loved him dearly I and mean, he and I are very close we have always been very close.
5: Christie's life would take the turn towards the unusual the day her father came back into her life.
6: I'll never forget I was walking out of kindergarten in my little uh, Catholic uniform I wore a plaid little skirt uniform and I can visualize it like it was yesterday and here he was like leaning against the railing of the sidewalk as you would exit the school, and I would walk home. And I was like, Dad? You know, I was just so happy to see him. And so he would come and go just at random times, trying to stay connected with us. And I know he really wanted to create an environment where he could send for us. So that love was always there, you know, in spite of the fact that the marriage fell apart. When my dad resurfaced, he had started something that no one had ever done before. He was quite the creative entrepreneur, and he started a jet ski rental in the 70s. And so the only people that ever saw jet skis back then would be like a 007 film or something like that. And they were skinny little stand-up types that were really difficult to ride. And so we thought, wow, I don't know how this business is gonna actually work. But he bought a whole bunch of jet skis for a fire sale, because. A Kawasaki dealership went out of business, and he started something that no one ever had before. He ended up pretty much coining the industry. He set up rentals all over South Florida and uh, all uh, aligned with really beautiful resorts. And so he started sending for us, and I spent my summers and my holidays with my dad, having fun on the company equipment. So uh, it turned out. Started off rough and terrible, turned out to be a good experience and my brother's rule was you can play with us if you can keep up, otherwise you're left alone on the beach. And so I was going 90 to nothing all the time just to, <laughs> just to not be left alone on the beach.
5: It was during those summers in Florida that Christy was introduced to her future profession.
6: The professional jet ski tour was invented and they started touring across the nation and they stopped in our city. And of course, my dad was involved in that. And so I said, hey, I want to race. And I borrowed a helmet I had no gloves, no shoes, just a, a rental jet ski and a weird orange life jacket. And ended up you know, competing uh, and loved every bit of it. And I think I was in my first race in the top three or top five or something like that. So I was 13 years old, went back to Chicago, back to reality, back to school, and school was very important to me, grades were very important. Um, I always considered maybe going to medicine or something like that, uh, If, but what ended up happening was the, um, my jet ski career took off. at age 15 i was sponsored on a professional team by the time i was 18 senior in high school i was flying out on friday after school to train with the team and back in on red eye uh, monday morning and straight to my high school i was pulling zero hour classes and then after hour classes to try to graduate early and I graduated in January instead of with my class and moved the very next day to California to be with the team full time and train eight hours a day every day to be ready for my first professional race, which was May 30th, 1989. So I'd be lining up with those who I admired. I looked at every magazine and and wished to be these girls that were winning for all these years before I entered that class and here I was on the starting line side by side and I was terrified.
5: But by her mother's teachings she held to her faith in moments when the odds seemed stacked against her.
6: I had memorized lots of scriptures while training things like the hand of the diligent shall prosper but a slackful hand will lead a man to poverty or In a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize run the race as if to win the prize so i took those scriptures with me into training and even though i could have cut corners or ended early without everyone knowing uh, i knew that would not honor god i took that with me to the starting line and there was this scripture that almost sounds ridiculous but he says paul says my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness so therefore i shall boast about my weaknesses, for when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Well, that just sounds ridiculous, but I was terrified on that starting line, and I said, I am very scared, so therefore I'm weak, and therefore I will totally depend on your power, and so I'll be stronger than I could be on my own merit. And that was my prayer on that starting line, and I ended up winning that race as well as many races going forward and became the world champion in 1989 as a rookie in my first pro year.
0: And you've been listening to Christy Swade, and it's a part of our Women of True Grit series. At 13, she said, hey, I want to race. By 15, she's sponsored on a pro team. By the age of 18, she's leaving class in high school, flying on Fridays to train with the pros and come back on Monday to go back to school and right after graduation, a day later, she's in California training to be a professional jet skier. When we continue more of our Women of True Grit series, The Story of Christy Swade here on Our American Stories. And we're back with our American stories and our Women of True Grit series and the remarkable story of professional jet skier Christy
5: Swade. Here's our friend Edie Hand with the story. Even though nowadays professional jet skiing is a thing of the past, Christy found herself riding the wave at its peak.
6: The jet ski industry really boomed in the early 90s, and we got picked up by ESPN, and we were actually having summer ratings competing with baseball. The national tour would be kind of like a NASCAR tour. We'd start off on the west coast, and work our way all the way across the East Coast. And every race stop would have its unique water conditions and we would set the watercraft up for those conditions. I would do testing, hours and hours of testing different parts to get the right setup for a certain environment. And depending on the water conditions, February weather, I would be eight hours sitting in Lake Havasu City in the Colorado River drainage, by the way. My feet would be like ice blocks, totally numb, and I'd have to wait for the next carburetor while cold. And uh, there was no sympathy. I mean, you know, they, you just have to embrace the pain. And so people thought, oh, our lives were just, you know, beach and fun. But no, it was a lot of off-season sacrifice going on.
5: And while it demanded a lot of her, the dedication she displayed paid off.
6: So my number went from 27 to one, and that was kind of cool, because that brought endorsements and you know in, uh, financial independence, and it went on from there. So I ended up defending my championship in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. 94, um, my competitor, Signed a deal with a different manufacturer, and her watercraft was just smoother in the rough water. And mine was pounding in every wave, and it started taking a toll on my body. So I was chronically injured. I had, you know, soft tissue inflammation. I was taking six to 10 Advil every day just to feel somewhat capable of training. Um, and then I ended up overtraining and, and sprained and broke ankle. I actually broke my sternum crashed on a mountain bike. <laughs> it was a rough year. It felt like everything was against me. I was really down on many levels and I wondered where God was. And and when things don't go well, you know, it's easy to praise God when everything's going great, but when things don't go well, you start to wonder have I been abandoned? You know, where are you?
5: And Christy carries one of those where are you moments with her to this very day.
6: My first time to be defeated in a long time. Uh, I was praying for a miracle, and the pressure was intense, and it didn't happen for me. And I really felt like I let everyone down, I felt like I let my sponsors down, my fans. I just was at the bottom of the barrel, and uh, I went home in Havasu, that's where the world finals are held, and the sun was starting to set, and I was still in my wetsuit, and I laid down on the carpet, like face down in the carpet just collapsed, and I just didn't feel like getting up and moving. I didn't feel like getting dressed. The awards were that night. I just didn't even want to go. And my mom had this suspicion that something wasn't good or right, so she came by my house and opened the door and saw me on the floor in the dark. (laughs) And she's like, get up. You are going to dress as though you won this championship. And you're going to thank everybody in the same way as if you had won this championship. And you're going to congratulate your competitor and tell her what a great job she did. And I'm like, oh no, I'm not. I, I can't even change my clothes, let alone fathom doing all that. And so we went and I was like, oh, I was loathing the whole thing. But I did it because otherwise I would suffer the consequences of mom. What's amazing is the fan mail that came to me after that. It blew my mind. And it was many parents writing to say, I'm so thankful my daughter, who's never won, has seen an example of grace in defeat. And I was like, I really don't deserve these praises because my attitude was wrong and bad. Those praises should go to my mom. So, you know, that was an example, a milestone for me that I still pull from when I feel down and terrible. But nevertheless, obedience, even with a bad attitude, produces fruit.
5: Obedience with a bad attitude produces fruit. If Christy had not learned that lesson and stuck to it, she may not have made it to where she is today.
6: So, 94 and 95, those were two tough, dark years for me in my racing career. And and again, 94, it started all the soft tissue injuries and I was one to always try to overcompensate with overtraining. I always thought, you know, more is better. And then it, it eventually ended up, I ha- had a broken ankle. I was actually racing in a cast. I mean, it, it was miserable. I, just like NASCAR, I mean, if you, even if you finish middle pack, you get points on the on the board, and it's a points system for the national championship. So even if I just finished a few laps, uh, I, I would have some points, and that's how you pay your bills. I mean, it's just, so there was just no option. I had to be out there.
5: And her persistence in the midst of pain would soon be the source of a comeback.
6: But um, when I got defeated again in 95, there was a company that wanted to help rehabilitate me, but also do a research and development experiment and find out what is the physical fitness intensity of jet ski racing as compared to like pro boxing. And they were trainers, it's called VersaClimber, and Heart Rate Incorporated. So what they taught me was how to train according to heart rate. And it transformed my life and my career. Your heart will tell you what's too much and what's not enough. That made me so powerful, Uh, their their support and their training. They said, jet ski racing, your heart rate never drops below 80% max and often nears 100% because you're in a deep knee bend, you're pushing and pulling with your arms, your head is holding up a wet helmet. Every single muscle in your body is firing at the same time. And so I started doing fitness endorsements and now as an expert of heart rate conditioning, and it was those injuries that put me in their care. And then in 1996, my competitor who had defeated me for two years, for the first time in three years, we will have been on equal equipment. So finally my contract ended with the watercraft that was abusing my body, and I signed on with the same manufacturer she was with and she had been with him for three years and I had three months to learn how to ride a new hull. And that was no easy thing either because all of my style that worked on the other hull did not apply to this hull. So I had to basically crawl before I could walk and walk before I could run on my watercraft. But once I figured it out <laughs> and that fitness was on my side, the difference between being paying that price and being fit intelligently is a difference in the last lap still having your faculties because you can think and make strategy because you're not so exhausted. And so I was able to pull off the championship in 96 as a big comeback. Now the sit-down market started to increase because the manufacturers manufacturers were noticing that for every stand-up sold, they're selling 10 sit-down watercraft. So I believe this was the beginning of the end of our sport because the sit down class is very challenging, but on camera, it doesn't really translate the intensity of what you're really going through on that watercraft. And then the ratings began to drop and then the sponsors began to walk away and the sport tanked after that.
5: But despite it being the end of her sports career, Christy was just getting started.
6: Those years, uh, I started doing more film and television stunts and um, picked up a nice little side job doing stunts on Baywatch.
0: And when we come back, more of Christy Swade's story. What happens next? The sport she loved, at least competing in it professionally, well, it had dried up. What happens next in so many of our lives when the profession we're in dries up? Our Women of True Grit series continues with Christy Swade's story. By the way, a Woman of True Grit story that you might have. Send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'd love to hear it. Again, when we come back, Christy Swade's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we left off with our Women of True Grit episode on Christy Suede with her career ending and she had found new ways it turns out to put her skills to other uses. Here's Edie Hand with the story.
5: Looking back Christy has her dad to thank for her jet ski career but she has her mother to thank for her character
6: My mom had always echoed to me that your purpose is to use your gifts and talents to glorify the Lord, so don't ever forget that. The way in which I was able to serve was through the Coast Guard Auxiliary. So I I had noticed that one out of three accidents on the waterways involved personal watercraft, which made me feel terrible because it's the sport I represent and I love. And it was also threatening our freedom to ride. They were starting to shut down waterways to personal watercraft, and so it was threatening. And so I ended up stepping up and becoming certified in all levels of marine safety, and then I spoke at lots of different conferences and taught safe boating classes, and all of it was uh, you know, volunteer work for the Coast Guard. And they had appointed me on um, the national staff, so I became the national goodwill ambassador for boating safety for the Coast Guard. And helped write a search and rescue manual using jet skis. And the philosophy was that, um, you know, a scalpel in a surgeon's hand can save a life and a criminal's hand can take a life. The jet ski itself is not evil. The jet ski can save a life in fast, shallow water. And I'll show you how, because I've been part of rescues um, several times. That was rewarding. I, I mean, I always felt like it's my responsibility to use my skill for a greater good. So um, it was a lot of hours, and sometimes it, 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 it got heavy. But, um, and then some of my colleagues, like my other my racer friends, would make fun of me for wearing the Coast Guard uniform that, that looked like a little do-gooder. And uh, these guys are like, you know, body piercings and tattoos. So it was, but I'm like, hey, I'm helping you preserve your right to ride. So get on board. (laughs) The other part of being a jet ski racer is really we're nothing more or less than a marketing tool. That's the whole point of a racing program for a manufacturer. In fact, Kawasaki was like a family to me and and they, they, put me into training to know how to do an interview and not miss an opportunity to get the brand up front, and how to kind of control the interview, make sure I say the things that they want said. And so they put me in some classes and training for that. Then when I accepted this responsibility as a safe voting leader, Uh, I got a column in a magazine, so I had a monthly editorial, so I had to get hired writing coaches to teach me and and edit my stuff and make sure that it was quality, worthy of publication.
5: She knew her partnerships would make her money, but she didn't expect that it would make her a match.
6: When I was actually at the Atlanta Super Show signing autographs with Corey Everson, six-time Miss Olympia, uh, who's just the most stunning woman you'll ever meet. Uh, uh, she was. Uh, she and I were signing autographs together for the VersaClimber and Heart Rate Incorporated company. And sh- her line was pretty long, mine was not as long as hers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this neurosurgeon came by who knew her and was waiting on her to go to lunch or something like that. And he came and started talking to me and I'm like neurosurgeon, you actually fix people's brains? And the answer was yes. And I'm like, the first thing I want to do is see his hands. So I grabbed his hand, I got to see the hands of a neurosurgeon and they were so soft and delicate. And then he's like, let me see your hands. And I said, no, (laughs) my hands are ugly, horrible. They're like a bear paw, you know, full of calluses and stuff like that. But nevertheless, he insisted and I showed him and yeah, I had these big, ugly calluses and stuff. But they're working hands, you know, and they were getting the job done, so. Uh, But anyway, I signed a scripture on a poster that allowed me to try to communicate quickly who I am and what matters to me to people who wanted posters. Well, anyway, that sparked our conversation to continue. And so my husband, his name is Dr. Suede, he uh, he and I kept in touch and we dated long distance for a couple years, LA to AL. And then finally he proposed and, and I had a big decision to make to completely and totally retire because you can't do the Hollywood scene unless you're there doing it every single day and especially pro sports it's it's a full eight hour a day commitment or you can't be competitive or you won't even be safe. So anyway the decision was made because I had a secret prayer. The prayer was always that I want to be a good wife to a good man and I'd never met a better man. And so um, we got married and then here I am in Alabama and everything I'm good at has no value. (laughs) So my husband's like, you know, I go, nobody cares about me being able to spin a fast turn around a buoy and I can't cook to save my life. I need instructions on boiling water. I mean, so um, he had empathy for me and he said, why don't you just look around and anything you want to get involved in whatever it may be i'll support it well i really wish to be able to have kids and I, I hadn't gotten pregnant yet and that was not happening immediately i actually had to go to doctors and make sure i was okay and uh, able to conceive so i was praying for that and i started noticing children I my mean, eye was just drawn to children and i saw that one out of three children in alabama are carrying you know, extra weight that is very dangerous to their health. It's a ball and chain. You see the fatigue in, in their face, and it makes it difficult for them to focus in school. It makes it difficult for them to, to to blend socially. And I just felt such compassion that I wanted to do something very, very aggressive in that direction. And this was in 2002, so it was not quite a trend yet. So my husband being a scientist and also, you know, he was, you know, chief of neurosurgery at UAB and he's very connected to a lot of the top UAB professors and and doctors, you know, he said, if you're going to do this, do it right. Let it be science-based, let it be measurable, you know, just don't waste your time. Know that you're making a difference or don't waste your time. And so I gathered a volunteer advisory team. And all of them were the brightest and the best in their respective fields of preventive medicine, pediatrics, cardiovascular health and wellness, obesity, and then education. So we knew that if you wanted to educate children, but not just tell them what to do, let them practice what you're preaching, it would have to boil down to PE, physical education. And I noticed that was a misused period of time for most schools in Alabama at that time, and in some cases today, but that's changed dramatically since. And I made the argument and the claim that if we could turn PE into a measurable personal health and wellness experience, I think we could dramatically help children prevent diseases before they become established.
5: And that's how Christie's HEAL Initiative was born. And you've been listening to our Women of
0: True Grit series and Christy Swade, And my goodness, what things we've learned from this young lady. I mean, she's lost everything she cared about. Her husband, basically, and she come to the conclusion that especially everything I care about has no value. And so now she's got to figure out how to do something that adds value to the world. And by the way, this is a fundamental part of her life. Your purpose is to use your gifts, talents, and all to glorify God. And that's what she believed, and so many Americans believe this. I'd say the vast majority of Americans believe this. When we come back, we're going to find out what Christy Suede does in her new endeavor to work on childhood obesity in her home state of Alabama. The Women of True Grit series continues here on Our American Story. with the conclusion of Christy Swade's story. We've heard about her career as a professional jet skier, as a TV stunt woman, and then as a safety advocate with the Coast Guard. And by the way, my goodness, sometimes I'll go out on a Saturday and a little bit of alcohol, a lot of people just doing crazy stuff. And the worst and most dangerous place to be is out on the water. But it was seeing the children's obesity epidemic after moving to Alabama that really pushed her into the health and wellness space and driven by science and data not simply by emotion. Here's the rest of the story, the last part of the story. Here's Christy.
6: We are seeing 10 year olds being prescribed adult strength medication for chronic diseases such as high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes. Taking Lipitor, this is stuff that was traditionally only seen in aging adults. We know we have an epidemic that is crippling uh, on many levels. It started small in one school. We refined it and then we went into two schools and five schools in a completely socially, economically diverse cluster of schools. We didn't leave anyone out. We didn't, we just wanted to make this something that could work for everyone. HEAL was designed and it's completely built on heart rate technology. Heart rate technology saved my career when I was in the most peak Of physical fitness but then heart rate technology helped me through my pregnancies which by the way I did conceive and I do have two beautiful boys another dream come true and uh, and then since I mean I'm now about to be 49 and holding and I've got all kinds of wear and tear and training is different for me today than it than it was 10 years ago and heart rate still just keeps me doing the best thing for myself Uh, So it's true for children. You get a child who's not fit in their target heart zone, they don't have to move very quickly to be in their zone. And it's the zone, 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate, that produces the most health benefits for disease prevention. So being above the zone is not better. Being below the zone is not better. It's like a speed limit. This heart rate monitor is the speedometer in the car and your zone is your speed limit. So, if we get children in their zone and they get rewarded for being in their zone, the child who's not fit can get an A right alongside the athlete who's on the track team. They're both on an equal playing field and they both can be successful in PE. And so now uh, PE has great value. And we are now being credited by the State Department of Education and the State Department of Health for helping schools satisfy seven out of 10 wellness components with one curriculum. And we're getting significant measurable results every single year and thousands of testimonies of how this curriculum has not just changed the student's life, but the family's behavior. And also uh, teachers, we've built a teacher training component because a lot of PE teachers were former athletes who kind of got unmotivated or lost their way in their own health and wellness journey and so we have what we what a corporation would call employee wellness programming we provide professional development training for our educators so that they are leading by example. HEAL stands for healthy eating active living and it is a health and wellness program that It's not just about food and physical activity, we also teach about healthy sleep patterns and uh, how to uh, connect and engage with your family members and friends so that you can enjoy the journey of health and wellness. It's always better to to practice health behaviors with people you love and for people you love. Valuable things deserve the best of care and since you're so valuable you should know how to take care of your health Which is the springboard to success in school and in life and that applies to people of all ages
5: Heal is changing lives for the better There are numerous stories starting with the picture above her desk
6: that little boy up there in that picture he was actually expelled from school for violent behavior heal hero campaign is something we start in the beginning of the year and we let it be known that if anyone who engages in the heal program um, with their teacher and follows the instructions but also then uses their heal knowledge and passion to help others they are a candidate for the heal hero award which will be given at the end of the school year and so, this little boy, uh, for the first time, grabbed onto something that resonated with him. And instead of being a bully, he chose to become a heel hero. And he became an assistant coach to the PE teacher, and the entire school voted him the heel hero. So there he is up in the Ivory Club at a Bama game because we wanted to give him a little extra special reward. But he is a foster child and he gets bounced around. His parents um, are having a rough time and so his home life is rough and I'm so thankful that Heal gave him something very special that transformed his heart and his body and his mind and uh, so he has a positive purpose. We have this little studio called Rennie's Living Room and that's in the heel headquarters here. Rennie's living room is a reenactment of this precious girl who was in fifth grade at the time. She also lived in a neighborhood where there's a lot of gun violence, and her mother forbid her and her little brother to ever go outside and play. So they lived in this tiny, confined apartment. So this girl got the idea that she would gather all her heel materials from school and teach her little brother how to do them in the house and she wrote her testimony which said it was a key to life for our family that my mom is losing weight and my brother and i are eating more vegetables and we are physically active in our house it was it changed and in fact we had a sociologist review her testimony because she started off saying that she was anxious and sad and then at the end that she now has hope and a whole new view of life once again. So it's these stories that make me love to come to work. It's not really work for me or my team. My whole team feels the same way. It's these testimonies that just, there's no limit to what we'll give in terms of our time and our effort to keep working with HEAL and these children. We, we currently serve uh, 170 schools, 34,000 students today. And that's about 90,000 household members. And they, uh, at the end of the year, they all write testimonies. So that's a lot of testimonies. We hand them off to UAV and Sanford University. And a lot of college students are now doing um, internships with us and dissertations and research efforts. So we've become a factory for research. And it's super fun because we just get to get these beautiful reports of all the good work being done out there. HEAL is, is universal enough to where we could be friends with everyone, keep that education train going, because I believe education is what sparks the awareness and the motivation for why and how a child would want to start living healthy lifestyle behaviors. And I've seen children becoming the champions of their household look at it in reverse. I mean, how many parents have their kids driving them through fast food because they want it so bad? I mean, we do what our kids want. Well, fortunately, we're able to uh, we're able to get children to want to live healthy lives. These children see their parents taking medications. they see them going in and out of the doctors. they see them sick and they say, "I don't want to be like that. And we have a captive audience, and these little fifth graders will go in and transform their households for better health.
5: Family has been at the heart of everything Christy has done from the start. Had her mother not picked her up off the ground all those years ago, and taught her grace in defeat, Christy may not have overcome the odds to become a champion, battle through injury, and begin a national fight for help. Now she must call upon that strength again, in the face of loss.
6: My mama is is really sick and she's preparing me that she's going to the Lord soon. And that's hard for me. Breaks me to pieces. But her words are are ones that I'll always hold on to. And she would say, Don't you dare make it about me. She told me when when I pass, I, I don't want that thing open. You close it up and put a pretty picture on top because that's not me. I will have evacuated that body that has extended its shelf life. So she said, um, remember the best is always yet to come. And so my mom says that in every season of life, the best is yet to come, stay strong. Great fruit will be born through this adversity. And even the worst, you know, the, the, L- losing of someone you love. You know, I mean, as much faith as we all have, we're going to miss her, and I don't look forward to that. Uh, and I'm suffering a great deal, and it, and it causes fear. But I have to hold firm to the faith. The alternative is not an option.
0: And you've been listening to Christy Swade and Christy's mother in the end. Well, she did evacuate that body to put it in her words. And the best is yet to come. Christie's mother passed, but my goodness, all that Christie's mother taught her is there. Stay strong and great fruit will be born of adversity. And indeed, that's been the case in Christie's story and in so many of the stories that are a part of our Women of True Grit series. Thanks to Edie Hand and thanks to Christy Suede and her mom, who's in heaven looking down on her daughter. I'm sure that's what Christy thinks, and certainly what I do. There's stories, all of them, here on Our American Story.